Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to read down through verse 11, the introduction to the section that we are dealing with. In our outline tonight, everything says the theme of the section, the structure of the section. The section is Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. That's the section. We're talking about we're introducing that part. That's what we're going to be on the rest of the year. And we want to look at it again tonight. But let's start with this introduction that Isaiah gives to what he has to say. Chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly. And I mean, speak to the heart. Speak to their, their, their needy hearts. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And then the rough, a plain and the rugged terrain, a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord, and that's a very important thought for tonight, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? This means cry out with a, as a crier who's going out to, to present a message. Call out, present your message. Go out and, and what should I, what is the message to deliver? What shall I call out? All flesh is grass. This is what he's to say. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Now, I want you to note that the breath of the Lord here, um, if you were close enough, you would know that as I am speaking, in order to say it loud enough for you to hear, there is breath up here. All right. You can't feel it out there, but if you were close enough, you would feel it. That's what he's talking about here. The breath of the Lord here isn't God just blowing like a hurricane across people. It is the breath that comes when God speaks His Word. And when that breath comes and the Word of God comes to those people, it says what? When the, they will, uh, sure, when the, the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people... All, all people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word, that's what he says, the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on the high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with, his, with might with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. The introduction to this section. But let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer before we start to look at it. Father, we come and give you thanks for your word. Settled established. 
Thank you that every word that you've ever spoken will be fulfilled. Its fulfillment will come. Its purpose will be worked out. We thank you for the activity of your word. And we're coming and asking tonight as we think on that word, as as you speak to us by your spirit, that you will have your way in our hearts and prepare us for the day in which we live. Oh, Lord, meet us tonight. So your name is honored and glorified as it needs to be honored and glorified in this generation, in this nation, in this place. Let make it so. So we come to you and we're looking to you for it. And we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 form one complete unit. Isaiah likes to group up his messages and to present units. Uh, if you get something like Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah, you go there. Jeremiah is every chapter. It's a collection of messages, and they're roughly all along the same line, but they're just a piece from here and a piece from there and, and a piece from over there. Isaiah's message is not like that. It gets on a it gets on a track. It's not the kind of track that we see easily because he's thinking like a Hebrew instead of thinking like a Westerner. But nevertheless, he's on a track. He's moving towards a goal. And we want to think about what is it, the goal? What is happening in these chapters? So we have to look at the whole thing or look and think about it as a whole. Now, first of all, it says the theme of the section. And I want you to note the theme of the section. It says what is deliverance. Deliverance. That's what it's about. That's that's important. And again, this is Isaiah's own name means salvations in the Lord, or the Lord saved, Jehovah saved. This is about a deliverance that God's going to bring. Now, we have to put the two together here. There's the first half of the book. The key word is warning. Now, here's what's happened. When Isaiah begins to minister, he's talking to a group of people who have to make a decision about which way they're going to take their nation. They were nationally blessed. They were called as a nation by God. And they're at a kind of a crossroads because they haven't been following God all that closely. And Isaiah comes to say, it's time to seek and trust the Lord. Right? That's the thing you should always be doing. And that group of people had an opportunity to do that, to seek the Lord. But it was a crossroads time. And he's telling them that because even though Hezekiah, which we'll talk about in just a moment, is going to follow the Lord and try to lead the nation as a group... They followed the Lord until it got tough. And when it got tough, when they were, when they were back to the wall, they threw that off and decided they're going to trust in something else. Now he warns them, and if they continue in that, they're going to end up in sin. And if they end up in sin, which is where they're going, they're going to be judged out in the future. The word is warning because they still have a chance to repent. And so, the thundering warnings of the Old Testament, you have to, uh, sometimes they get almost scary to read, but remember this about those warnings. No matter how strong the warning is, it is always a call to repentance. It always indicates there is still hope. That the strongest word of condemnation that is found in the Old Testament is still a call. The most serious thing that can happen to any human being on the face of the earth is God stops talking. While he is talking, while the word is coming to him, there is hope. If he stops talking, that's serious. So at that time, in in those chapters at the very beginning, they start off with the serious condition of the nation. And we aren't going to go back over that. That's not our point. 
The last part of the book, the part we're concerned about, it says there that the, the idea, the key word there is promise. It's, it's about deliverance, but it's, it's promise. And at this particular juncture, and we'll go back over this a little bit more in a, in a few minutes, but at this juncture, Isaiah, the main thrust of his message is actually for people that will live 150 years after he dies. He's addressing a group of people that are still yet to be born. Because it's going to happen. The people of his day are going to take an action. They're not going to respond to God's word. And as they fail to respond to God's word, they move further and further down. And the, the judgment is, is inevitable. They will finally be taken out of that nation. They'll be taken somewhere else in the fulfillment of all God said he would do if they wouldn't follow him. And they're, they're going to end up in a place called Babylon, which is modern Iraq. All right. They're right down there in the middle of Iraq, and they are living there. And, um, and Isaiah speaks to them. By that time, they're in terrible, a terrible condition because they're not only in there in captivity, but they're there because of their own willful choice to refuse God. What's their hope at that situation? That's the reason the, the last section is given. God's going to come and get them because God is a delivering God. And that's what the section that we have is particularly concerned about. The structure of the section is really quite simple, and I want to go over that just real basic. There are 27 chapters in the last part of the book of Isaiah. That matches, it's pretty easy to remember, because that matches the number of books in the New Testament. In a real sense, Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 are the New Testament of the Old Testament. All right? It comes as close to a parallel to the New Testament as you could probably get. It will start in the section that we read tonight, those first verses. Those verses will be quoted by John the Baptist as he begins his ministry. Right? That's the beginning of the Gospels, and it fits right in there. When you get to chapter 66 of the book of, or this section of Isaiah, we find God seated on his throne, just like he is in the book of Revelation. Now, having said that, let me also say this, it does not go through the old, the New Testament. But there is one other feature that we need to note about it, the central character of those chapters is found in the central chapter of the section. There's 27 chapters. They are in three groups of three in the central chapter to them because it's neg- since it's a an uneven number, you can have a middle chapter, and the middle chapter is Isaiah chapter 53, which is a description of the suffering servant of Jehovah. Just as the New Testament is all about Jesus Christ, it's centered on Jesus Christ, this section is centered on Jesus Christ. Now, in just trying to understand what's going on, there is there are three kind of cycles of thinking. All right, and I want to just note where they, they break there. They're in nine chapter cycles. Now, let me just say this also about the chapters. I've said this before. Chapters and verses. God didn't write the book with, he didn't put that in. He didn't dictate, now that's chapter one, and then stop. You know, it, didn't, it wasn't put in there. Chapters and verses are a grid that, people have put on the Word of God because it was studied to help us find our way around. All right, just know that. It's not inspired. So the chapters, although they come in 9, 9, and 9, and Isaiah chapter 53 is right in the middle, 
it actually is not in the middle by words. It's, it's just that's the way they've arranged it. But it is helpful for, for us because it, it reminds us of what the message is. The center of it is about Jesus Christ. And so whoever did that helped us out a lot. Right, now there are three sections. We note that the end of a section comes because of a, a formula that he puts in at the end of sections. If you go to chapter 48, all right, and I want to read the last uh, three verses of chapter 48. It says, go forth from Babylon, he's talking to those people, and go forth from Babylon, from the Chaldeans, declare with a sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made the water flow out of a rock for them. He split the rock, and the water gushed forth. Now, that seemed that, that very encouraging. And then Isaiah seems to throw in, a, what is that about? Why did you put that in there? There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Right? That's just there. Now, if you go over nine chapters later, and you get to the end of chapter 57, all right? And I'm going to begin reading in verse 18 just to get, again, the feel for how this works out. In verse 18, this is chapter 57, verse 18, he says this, I have seen his ways, that is Israel, because of their sin. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. This is very similar to what he had said before. Creating the praise of the lips. Peace. Peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now those, those mark out the three sections. They're nine chapters long. They are all concerning the Messiah, but they each take a different, a different approach to the thinking concerning the Messiah. And I just want to mention this and then we're going to get down to that, that introduction. The first section is all about promise. If you read through there, that's where most of the verses that you have that have promise of what God's going to do. You remember that verse that probably almost everybody has heard? I will pour water on them that are thirsty. I will pour floods upon the dry ground. That's the promise, or part of the promise, that's in this section. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will, uh, with my right, my mighty right hand, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you up. All right? That's also from there. There's a whole series of promises about what God's going to do. So the first thing he does in this, and almost every commentator agrees on that part, that the first one's about promise. In the second section, the focus turns to the way he'll deliver. It's not just the promise of deliverance. It's how he's going to work it out. And it, it focuses on the deliverer. And in the third section, he then talks about how it's going to all work out. How he is going to actually bring the salvation which he has provided to bear in the, in the world. All right? That's one way you can look at it. Let me just say this is just a, as you're reading through, I hope you are getting a chance to read through. It doesn't take a long time to read through these chapters. If you keep with it, you can, you can do it every week. No problem. But if you read through the third, the, uh, second way we can think about the difference in what's being said is in the very first chapter, think about it from the perspective of who God is. 
in those first nine chapters, the emphasis is on God as opposed to the human God's idols. He is the great God who is the one to be trusted as opposed to the idols. In the second section, he is talking about the way God will deliver by becoming a man. He's going to talk about the deliverer. It is God coming in as redeemer. All right, so in the first one, he's the God, the great God, as opposed to the idols of men. In the second one, he is the redeemer. In the third section, he's the king. He is the king coming to this earth and executing his plan. Which we, again, at the very beginning of our, our time here, we thought about this fact that if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand the God who's in there. He's a God who had a plan from the beginning and who is bringing that plan to pass. Isaiah sees it that way, and at the end of that chapter, or at the end of these chapters, we have the king moving in, taking action to bring salvation to bear on this earth. Now, again, that's... <clears throat> We could go through a lot more on that. But just just as you're reading through, I thought it would be really helpful to have some kind of direction. Because, again, as you read, note that in the Hebrew way of doing things, you're going to move round and round and round and round and round. So he's going to say it, and he's going to repeat it, and he's going to look at it a different way. And so it's a little hard for us to follow, but if you know that's where he's going, you'll be able to. it, It should be a big help. Okay, now, I want to think for a little while about the recipients of this section, right, the recipients of this section. And I think this is important not only for the book of Isaiah, but how we understand what we're saying when we say the Bible is the Word of God. this This is our theology concerning how we understand the Word of God. Who did? Who is the recipient? The first kind of principle of exegesis is that you've got to go back and figure out who did the writer speak to? Who was he talking to? Now, it would be easy to move to the second group of people as the first group. Well, he's talking to the people who are in Babylonian captivity. But that isn't possible because Isaiah will be dead 150 years before that the events that he is prophesying about will come to pass. Who was the first group of people he was talking to? When the early chapters, he's speaking to the people probably of Hezekiah's day. In fact, a lot of it is the day of Hezekiah and Ahaz, the men before this. Opportunity to trust God. The Assyrians are coming in. Are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust something else? Egyptians. Are you going to make plans with the Assyrians? What are you going to do? All right, that's past. When Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah, Hezekiah responded. They were good friends. Or at least they were real close acquaintances. When Hezekiah was in trouble, he appealed to Isaiah to pray for him. He makes this back and forth. They are very close. And Isaiah speaks to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah responded. And Hezekiah determined to lead the nation in repentance. They had a lot of repenting to do. They were really mixed up on a lot of things. But Hezekiah looks in there, and he deals with idolatry in the nation. He fixes up the tabernacle or the temple again and he during hezekiah's reign they had the best or the most complete remembrance of the passover that ever took place and at the beginning he seemed to sweep a lot of people along with him as they were ready to to oppose assyria and break free and trust god and everything was great until 
the Assyrians showed up. It was great to trust God to deliver us from the Assyrians as long as there aren't any Assyrians. But when the real Assyrians showed up and are in the area, in mass, the people deserted Hezekiah. Then you get that terrible, lonely moment. What a lonely moment it must have been. And if you've ever read through there, when Hezekiah, trapped in the city of Jerusalem, gets a letter and says, we're going we're to do you in. We're going to do you in. And he has to go all by himself. How about that? He doesn't have a band of prayer warriors to go with him. Hezekiah goes all by himself and puts that letter in front of the Lord and says, I tried to trust you. I led the people to this place because I believed that you were the deliverer. I can't do anything about it. It's between you and them. And let it go where you want it to go, but it's, I'm leaving it with you. Now, the point I want to make here is this, that he didn't have mobs following him. And because Hezekiah was faithful to go and to put it before the Lord, the Lord delivered Hezekiah. A lot of people got hurt in this thing, but he delivers the city of Jerusalem. Now, we kind of come to this conclusion that through all that, there were some who really followed along. Now, when Hezekiah was 15 years before he finished his reign... He got sick, and he it, and Isaiah goes tells him it's, it's this is it, and he cries out to God to deliver him, and he does. He says, "Okay, I will. I'll give you fifteen more years." At that time, when he is mortally sick because it's, it looks like he's going to die, Manasseh was placed on the throne. He's a twelve-year-old boy, but to keep continuity in the nation, he was he was raised to the position of king. And for 15 years, Manasseh and Hezekiah were the together kings of Israel, right? And then, or of Judah. Then after that, Manasseh will become king. As soon as Manasseh became king in the soul realm, he is, he is the complete leader. He started taking things back towards sin. He became involved in the occult. He idolatry, put things back. He put idols in the temple. He did about everything you can do, and because of that, they'll go to the captivity. Now, Isaiah survived to that point. Now, we don't know when these last chapters were penned. When were they put together? But there is no indication in them that when Isaiah put these last chapters together, it's something like Daniel did later on. Daniel was given some information at the end of his life, and he was told to do this with it. Now, seal this up. Take what what you've written down and roll it up and put a seal on it for later. Daniel did not deliver that message to anybody. He just rolled it up, and we don't know how it got got down the line. But he's not going out to preach it. But this section, which is way ahead for for Isaiah, which is speaking about years and years ahead, every indication is from the way it's written that Isaiah went out and said that. Why would he say that? Why would he say these things to people? I believe personally, and again, he doesn't say But there's a godly remnant out there. There are people who have trusted God back here and they see everything sliding away. And you remember what we said a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the difficulty of perceiving the actions of God in your own circumstance. When you step back from history 
and you're out of the circumstances, it very often is possible to see, oh yeah, God did this, or He did this, and this had to be the Lord to change that direction and bring this to pass. But when you're in the middle of everything happening, it's very difficult to do that. These people were in the middle of a slide which would have been heartbreaking. They saw what Hezekiah tried to do. They followed Hezekiah. They are hoping for good, better days. And then they watch a guy come in and he's sacrificing his children. He's following idols. He's putting idols in the temple. He's getting, he's bringing in the occult and everything you can think of with regards to sin is coming in. And you're heartbroken about this, and you know what Isaiah said, and you know that the judgment of God is hanging over you. You need comfort. And the way, I, that's what I believe, the very first reason why this was given, this these chapters, was to comfort a group of people that God is not beaten by the difficulties of the moment. He's not even beaten by the refusal of his people to seek his faith. God is king. He's not only not beaten, but he has a plan. He already has a way in which he is going to bring this back together. And he wanted to assure them that when everything that they know is going to happen because of what Deuteronomy says and what Isaiah says, when all that comes to pass, God's going to come in deliverance. I think the first way we have to understand this is a word of comfort to people who are living in a really bad day. To realize that God has a plan and he's working it out. But there is a second group of people who will receive this message. And it becomes very important too. Because God is going to, in the process of giving his word to Isaiah, predict a number of things that are out in the future. About how he will act and what he will do. And he's going to get real detailed in it. He's going to get so detailed in it that there are people who believe it couldn't have been written before that. It had to have been written after this because of because he just predicts certain things. But that's a problem, of course, because he also predicts certain things that take place 800 years after. We know he didn't, it, you know, it wasn't after that. So if he could predict the Lord's death on the cross so accurately, why couldn't he predict this accurately? It, it's really not, it's, it's a problem. But what, what do we need to get out of that? One of the reasons why God predicts the future is to let us know He is God. To let us know that He is in control, and that control, He has a plan from way back here. I can tell you what the plan will be. There is nothing like the Bible on the face of the earth to have predicted what was going to take place. God is shouting to us that He is God. When the people who this is going to be received, again, the next group or the people that are in that captivity, who are trapped, who know they've sinned, who know that their, their way is, is coming, it's, it, it's just got them trapped. He, or, excuse me, Ezekiel will describe it this way. He says, this is the spirit of the people. Remember this, the vision, what's a bad night? The vision of the valley of dry bones, right? You remember that? And, I, and Ezekiel goes out and looks across a field of just dried up, disconnected bones and is asked by God, can the dry bones live? And 
again, does exactly what you don't think I would do. And you know, I don't. Because if you can bring them together, they can come together. If you can't bring them together, there's no hope because they're dry bones. I'm not going to predict the future here. And we won't go on with that, but here's what he says about it. He says, this is what Israel says. This is the people in captivity. Here's what they said. Our hope is gone. Our bones are dried up. There is no possibility of going forward. We are trapped in our sin. We heard the word of God. We refused the word of God. We got ourselves into this mess. And now we are, we are suffering for what we have. We brought it on ourselves. And now the situation is hopeless. These chapters of Isaiah come to tell them what? Comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. The people who have sinned. Remember, they're not people. They're not good people. They're not great people who have a great record. They are the people of God who have stepped aside from the will of God. Go and comfort them and speak to them. That's the second place. Now, Isaiah has a habit of doing another, another prophetic habit. As Isaiah looks forward to see what God's going to do in the judgment of Israel and in the restoration of Israel, he starts to look way past that to a bigger, to a bigger program. This short-term program of judgment and deliverance reminds him, or it, it speaks to him, it matches up with another program of judgment and deliverance. And in his description of what God is going to do to deliver Judah, he starts going way out to another day. We call this a messianic poem because he starts to talk about one we know as the Messiah, the anointed one. Part of that comes from this section when Jesus Christ, again in the New Testament, quotes a passage from this. as the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me. That idea of being anointed, that's, that's the messianic part. The Messiah, the anointed one, the one that will come out there. And Isaiah begins to see that. So there is a third group of people who are going to receive this word. And that third group of people are the people of the Lord's own day. This was a very important passage. <laughs> a very important book at the New Testament times. Because in it there is a description of what was happening around them. So that when John the Baptist comes out and and starts to proclaim his message and people realize something has happened, the prophetic voice is back. We haven't heard a prophetic voice in 400 years, but the prophecy is back and they want to know, who are you? Who is it? And what does he say? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's who I am. And see, if, if they heard that, and they did, they looked back at this book, if they, and that book was exactly the way it, way it is today. Sometimes we think that maybe the Bible got all kind of messed up over the years. There was a Dead Sea Scroll found in the book of Isaiah. It is virtually identical to the one you have in Orel, to the one, the, the scroll, which transla- is translated in our... Uh, Old Testament. But you see, way down there, that group of people can know that God had a plan. And you go and you can read, just do that part this week, read Isaiah chapter 53, and realize that was written 
hundred years before the event and check off the boxes of the things which are specifically stated. Why did God do, do that? To show off? He doesn't do it for any other purpose than the fact that he knows that because he is the invisible God, it is difficult for you and it is difficult for me to grasp the idea that he's there. It is easy for a dead man, a man who is dead to God, to miss that he's out there. And so he not only speaks to us through creation, he prophesies, he tells us what he's going to do. And when it comes to pass, he's screaming to us, I am here and I know what's going to take place because of his love for me and his love for you. He wants you to know that there is a God in heaven. Now, the last place that we want to note again as we go through this is this speaks to us, right? This is part of our theology of the Word of God. Every time you open the Word of God, the living God is speaking to you. Got that? There's sometimes we get a, a sort of a sense where it, it's divided into, I can read it, but then the Lord really spoke to me. No, He really spoke to you the whole time. Now, there might be a time when you really heard Him, but He was really speaking the whole time. All right? Because that's the nature of the Word of God. He speaks, he's giving to us. So as we read this, He wants to assure things to, He wants to make assurances to us as to what kind of a person He is. So who is the recipient of the book? Well, the men of Manasseh's day. And on the paper it says there it could have been the later part of Hezekiah's day. It could have been the beginning of Manasseh's day. It may have been during that time when they were both kings, both on the throne at the same time. But somewhere in there he speaks to assure the hearts of the of the people that live in Isaiah's day that God is in control. He'll speak to the people in the captivity. He'll speak to the people at the Lord's day. And he will speak to us through this. Well, what does he have to say? What does he have to say? Let's look at the passage. Just the introduction to what's going on. Tremendous word. Very important for us concerning the word of God. <clears throat> He starts off with this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And as we said before, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Now speak to her heart. Speak to her heart. Get right down to, to the where her heart is hurting. But then he says this, call out to her. And the picture there of him calling out is, okay, you've gone up and you, you want somebody to listen to you, but they are so absorbed in their pressures and tensions and, and misery that they aren't listening. So he says, now, you're going to speak tenderly. I want you to speak to their very heart, but call out to them. Shake them. That's what we do. Shake them and let them know something. And here's what they're let to, they are to find out in their misery. Tell them that their warfare has ended. Now, he's not speaking here about a war between God and man. That's not the picture. The picture is this. In those days, a person could be, a young man could be impressed into duty in, in an army. All right, a guy comes through and he says, you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, you're in the army. These guys were typically used as infantrymen. They were the, you know, they're the guys that go out in front and get, get the arrows in them because you have your good guys back here. They had a particularly miserable experience in being in the army, but you could only keep them for a certain period of time. You could impress them in there. 
But it, it was it was identified with an experience of misery. You didn't get enough food. You were kicked around. You were the bottom of everything. It was a terrible experience. Call out to her and tell her that her warfare, her 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 draft is over. She doesn't have to serve anymore. You don't have to stay there anymore. You're finished. That's done. Your misery is gone. So it's, it has to do with the removal of misery, not the idea of being delivered from a conflict there. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. She's released. That her iniquity has been removed. That's pretty straightforward. Now, when he says their iniquity has been removed, he is not saying that she has had... Because what that means is that a price has been paid to get you out of something. Either you paid a fine to release yourself from jail or you did your jail time. All right? That that her iniquity is pardoned here is the idea that it, it's been paid for. Everything is, you're, you're free to leave. You were supposed to stay in jail for 30 days. Your 30 days are up and out you go. 10 years, whatever it was. There was a fine to be paid. The fine was paid. But let them know. Let them know that even though they feel like they're still in that place, that their iniquity has been removed. And then this mysterious statement. Scholars, a little different on opinion there, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And without going too in, too far into it, to say this, that some think that, that this has to do with the fact that they, this has to do with their sin and the fact that they have now paid it all. But in light of the way the book is going, I think we should take it the other direction. Tell them this, that for everything you have done that's wrong, you're going to receive twice from the Lord in blessing. Not only the one-time blessing of being forgiven, but you're going to have blessing poured out upon you. One of the great features of being able to tell people about the gospel, if they're ready to hear, is this, that you're not only forgiven. That's what I grew up, I thought that was the whole of salvation, was if you just, God wasn't going to spank you for your sins anymore, that was it. He says, no, you're not only going to be delivered from the guilt of your sin, I am going to put my love upon you. I am going to bless you with everything I have to bless you. Tell them that. Now, you got picture again. You got get that picture of the people. They're still trapped. But let them know that that's what's, what's going to, have to take place. How is it going to take place? Voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert and the highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough places become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed because the Lord is on the move. That's part of the book here. It's a picture of an active God who's on the move. And he says to to level everything. And, And because the... John the Baptist picks this particular verse and says, that's what I'm doing. We tend to believe that what he's talking about here with the leveling is this. He's got to bring mankind to a place where they understand that the great ones aren't great and the down ones aren't down, that they're all in exactly the same plane. You know, there's a, that would be the, the day in which he lived. There's a few men like Nebuchadnezzar. They sit on the throne. They're the big guys. They have all the money. They've got all the privilege and all the rest of it. And you're the dirt at the bottom. You know, you're the guy that just you make it by and they, they kick you around. And he says, let, let the ones that are up here, let them bring them down because you're going to, human beings are just human beings. And the ones that have been rejected and, and, and 
or have been oppressed. Put them on the same plane. Because what we're going to see now is that we're going to see the glory of the Lord. And when you see the glory of the Lord, then the little differences between men, not a big deal. Then he comes to another point. Now, again, that goes on because of why is the Lord coming? He's coming to deliver. Again, that's where we're going. But I want to finish up with this, with the verses that begin in verse 6. It says, a voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? What is the message to give? This is an interesting message. What's the message to preach to prepare the way of the Lord? Right? To prepare for what's going to take place. Okay, here's what he says. All flesh is grass. Now, is that depressing? Now, flesh here just means human beings. All right? All people are grass. The whole human race is grass. All right? And he says something about that grass. And the grass and, uh, and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Now, um, the loveliness has to do not with the people, but what the people regard as important. Right? So that all people in this room are dying. All right? We're all dying. We're all in the same boat. We're <laughs> our glory, the best days. It's all fading. It's bra- it breaks my heart sometimes to see the athletes that I looked up to as a kid try to get on a baseball field and throw a baseball because they're, they're, they're 20 years older than I am, 10 years older than I am. And they had a capacity to throw a, a baseball, maybe a pitcher who could throw a ball at almost 100 miles an hour, and now <laughs> they're hard-pressed to get the ball from the mound to the plate. Because all flesh is grass. The athletic ability that they used to have is no longer there. That's what he's saying. The flesh is grass, but its glory is like the flower of the field. That is, the things that make people think that they are experiencing glory all passes away. It is all fading. Now, cry this out to them. They know that already if they'll just look up. All right? The terrible Assyrians, the kings of the world that came in against them are gone by the time this message would be important. The Babylonians are at the end of their time. Babylon was an, it was an incredible city. An incredible city. And now they can't even dig it out of the ruins. I mean, the ruins are over there in, near Baghdad, but it's, they can't even get it dug up. Lord's prophecy said they wouldn't be able to, anyway, we won't go to that. It's on the side. But the point is, it's, it's gone. They were replaced by the Medes and Persians. And they're gone. And they were replaced by the Greeks. Great Greeks, you know, Greek, oh, here we go, Greek, right? The Greeks, the great statues and their, their philosophies. And they're gone, right? The philosophies that they live by and develop, they, they spend their brain, you know, work your brain. It's one of the great things about philosophy. You work and work and work to get one, and some kid comes along and shoots it out of the sky. Because there is no way to describe life that makes sense once you discount God. Take him out of the equation, and you can't figure out what to do. There is no way you can do it. Men have been trying. But that's what he's saying, the glory. The glory fades away. Rome faded away. Every culture 
that was out there, which was the prime culture of their day, whether it's in the east or in the or in the east or west, it doesn't matter. They are all gone. And every culture that is alive today is going to be gone. Get down to the details. Um, we watch this phone, this uh, program where they, they fix up old homes. Now, I'm old enough that those old homes look like, hey, what's wrong with that house? <laughs> and I was watching a couple, I don't know, it was a couple weeks ago. And they had a 1950s mansion. I mean, this was a mansion. This guy had put a lot of money into this thing. And he had the best of the best. Got it. Get rid of it all. We'll just keep the shell and we'll rebuild the whole thing. <laughs> Why? What's he, what's, what, is that, what are they attesting to? What he says right here. All flesh is grass and is glory like the flower of the grass. You see, not only are we dying, but everything we trust in, everything we get glory from is fading away. The clothes we used to wear to be neat, to be cool, to be whatever, are laughed at. And for those that are laughing, it will happen again. <laughs> All right? Just, <laughs> it's, going to, it's going to pass away. All right? And so he says, here's what you're going to do. You want to prepare the way of the Lord? Go shout this to people. Let them trust that they can get it through their brain. That they are dying and everything around them is fading. That everything they try to grab to be glorious, to, to hold on to, to pre- present themselves as better, is it's passing away. Whether it's their education, their skills, their car, their clothes, their friends. I don't care who it is or what it is. He says, all the glory is fading away. All the people are grass. But then that's not the end of the message. What is it that causes it all to kind of fade away? Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. But when he blows upon it, he's not just trying to kill people with his breath. What he is doing is he is speaking his word. He's speaking his word. He says, here's, you want to prepare for the Lord? You want to prepare, be prepared? Know this. But this is still here. The Babylonians are gone. The Assyrians are gone. But what Isaiah said is still here. And it still has meaning to people. And when all of those other people and all their great schemes were come to an end, 800 years later, the one Isaiah spoke about did just what Isaiah said he was going to do. All right? Now, the reason we have to listen to that is because Isaiah isn't finished speaking yet. There is another day out there which he says, and this is what he describes in the next passage, says the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And when it comes, because he gets it the other day, after the redemption, then comes the final judgment. And one of two things will happen when he gets to that point. Let's read it. Let's look at there. It's okay. Oh, that's chapter 49, so that won't work at all. All right. Back up here to chapter 40. And here's what he has to say. Get yourself up on the high mountain. He's talking after the Jerusalem is redeemed. O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Good news that God has made a deliverance. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. He's here. Behold, the Lord will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, 
And then he says this, and his recompense is before him. His recompense is before him. He intends to come this way, to like a shepherd, to come to his flock. But the choice is yours. The choice is mine. And he doesn't say whether you choose Jesus or don't choose this. He says this, which way is the glory of your life built on? What's it built on? Is it built on what God said, or is it built on what people out there are saying? It's just that simple. Everything that they say, whether it's their philosophy, their politics, their sports teams, their uh, things, whatever it is, everything out there is fading. Everything out there is disappearing. Attach your life to it. Attach your life to your car, to your home, to your friends, to your your country, to your politics, to whatever, your philosophy, your education. Attach it there, and it fades away. And when the Lord comes, it's going to be destroyed. Attach yourself to God through the Word. It stands forever. It stands forever. How do we know it stands? Because He said this was going to happen way back here, and it came to pass. He said that a man named Cyrus was going to deliver you later on, and Cyrus did deliver them. But he went beyond that. He said there's a, a suffering servant of Jehovah who would come out here, who would be a deliverer. And while the kingdoms came and went, God went along with his plan. And on a day around 30 A.D., Jesus Christ went to a cross and was put through everything he described there. When that day was over... He was buried in a tomb with a rich man in his death. Counted with transgressors, but counted with a rich man in his death. All that came to pass so you can know and I can know that this stands. The rest of it disappears. And the choice we make, the important choice is this. Are we going to put our faith in what God has said in his word and prove that it's true? Or are we going to go along and just flow into the into the society, whether it's this society or any other society, which is ultimately disappearing. It's a tremendous book. But that's how we're going to see. If we're going to hear the message of this book, that's what I have to be prepared. This is how you get ready to, for the day of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what, of course, John the Baptist did. Where are we tonight? I just ask you that. Come to that place where you've decided to stake your life on what God says in his word. There's good reason to do it. Not only did these things take place, but I'll also say this. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. You really ought to listen to him. He said he was going to do it, and he did it. And he showed that he had done it to prove that the gospel, the good news of what he has done on that cross is valuable for you and for me. Have you staked your life on that? Have you come to the place of faith in that? Have you put yourself in that place? Let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to do deep works in us. Father, in this confused day, confused generation, we're coming and asking you to move by your Spirit. Let's speak to every heart. You want to speak tenderly. You want to shake us. Father, it's able us to understand the world in which we live, understand our own frailty and mortality and no immortality in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring us to that and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.